Greg, do we need a letterboxed? I, I'm earnestly thinking about that. And I see other people I follow on social media on there as if I'll achieve their level of fame or notoriety or it adulation. Seems to be growing. It seems to be growing in popularity. And it seems to be the next hot... I mean, it's been around for years and years and years, but it seems like now it's finally attracting people who aren't in the movie snob uh, uh, bubble. But, so, now, but now that everyone's there, we don't really have a unique perspective, do we? What do we lend to the discussion? I mean, and most of it's just shit posting, right? It's got to be. Yes, I think most yeah. of it is. Either either people earnestly love Marvel movies or they uh, <laughs> give, a, give them one-star ratings to annoy people. Exactly. Go ahead. Unless they're, or it's like a jokey illumination on, uh, you know, Looney Tunes back in action or something like that. Like a deep, di like a deep diegetic thesis yes. on Looney Tunes Strike Back. I remember having that idea back in 2007. I wanted to do a deep analysis on Batman and Robin, particularly the nature of good and evil and mm -hmm. how we define a morality. Mm -hmm. um, but I was too lazy to do it back then. And now, uh, thanks to the internet, uh, 10 million people have done it now. So there you go. Yes. It's, I mean, the, fruitless think, enterprise the fruitless enterprise that said <laughs> look for us on letterbox <laughs> has the definitive essay on batman and robin been written who's to say however we there is enough out there that i think it's yeah. it's not exactly a unique perspective anymore yeah to be honest one, one was probably too many <laughs> okay John, question, answer yes. now. Okay. This is based on a mailbag a feature that one of our favorite writers does every week. His name's Drew McGarry. And I don't know, it's on a brand new site, so I don't know if you're seeing them, but there was there was a question no, on there. No, because it's I behind wanted... a paywall, and I, I staunchly refuse to pay for any news. Okay, That's I don't it. care how much they care about their children or if they need to eat. I am ad-blocking everything. Screw them. Yeah. Information deserves to be free, and you need to starve to provide it. Yeah. <laughs> Speaking of which, this is already a digression, but I do read The New Republic, which only gives you three free articles, I think, mm -hmm. um, unless you're private browsing, and then you can get all the free articles you want. But um, <laughs> yeah. one, one of their latest columns was a lament that liberal media now has to hide behind paywalls, and such an article was hidden behind a paywall. <laughs> Meanwhile, I conservative mean, that, media gets to be free because it's financed by the billionaire sickos. Um, exactly. So. You know, monsters who are like, you know what? Tax cuts are actually good. Okay, yeah. guys? <laughs> yeah, tax cuts are good. Um, Transgendered people are, are, are bedeviling your children. Mm -hmm. um, this is all a threat to Western uh, democracy as it is. Yeah, as, absolutely. As it, so. um, the cancellation of last man standing is a sign of fascism. <laughs> <laughs> the discourse has never been sharper. Yeah. Anyway, John, on to this question. It's a very pointed one. Do you miss video stores? <sighs> yes and no. Um, it's hard to argue with the ease. However, um, with kind of less information and the physicality of browsing, there is something lost there. Not being able to pick up and read the little blurb and examine the packaging. And, and you know, there's so much level of marketing. Like, would anyone really know? The classic 1999 film Jack Frost. If it wasn't for that, you know, uh, th that that uh, decal cover where it's like, oh, it's a normal-looking snowman. Wait, no, it's not. What am I in store for when I rent this movie? Yes. You First know, of all, it's, 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 I, we should probably clarify. You're talking about the 1999 horror, the 1995 horror film Jack Frost, yes. not the 1996 family film Jack Frost starring Michael Keaton. Exactly. That's yeah. that's the one I'm referring to. Uh, let's not forget the holographic cover for The Lost World, Jurassic Park. The yeah, wonderful. I mean, yeah. 
Oh, oh, look, Jurassic Park, everything looks so swimming. Wait a minute, there's a dinosaur coming out of here. Yeah, and popping right at you. Something has deeply gone wrong, and I must know more. Yeah. It's the best uh, 3D technology that uh, 1997 had to offer. Wonderful. Well, I mean, it's like, you know, I'm in, I'm in grad school right now, and we have to do all our shows now virtually, and there's just something lost when, you know, you can't experience something in a physical space. And even that's just browsing the covers and, and browsing the physical media. Like, there's something lost there, I think, even, even if it's not high art. You know, you, you want to be in a space. You want to be able to examine stuff in your own time and not just constantly clicking, click, click, click. The average yeah, I... time spent on a website, I think, is like <laughs> two, two, two milliseconds, so... <laughs> Yeah, I had the same feeling. I, I'm nostalgic for browsing any physical spaces, I think, now under cer- under these current circumstances. Um, if we should date this episode, California is now going into a second uh, lockdown. By that, I mean um, a second earnest lockdown for uh, privileged people like you and me, our poor mm. <laughs> medical frontline workers and, and grocery store workers still have to go into work and <laughs> subject themselves to this terrible illness. But anyway, um, yeah, I'm, I'm nostalgic for going to a physical space. But also, I found that I only miss certain stores. Like, I don't miss Blockbuster, because, again, everybody lamented, like, the bright fluorescent lights and the clean white shelves, and it made it feel very sterile. Uh, granted, that was a response to most video stores being associated with pornography and adult entertainment, and it wanted to you know, be, be a place for all families. But obviously, you and I being uh, radical, deep, subversive people, like, we want to go to the really dark places. I mean... And, I don't visit any store unless there's a beaded curtain somewhere. Yeah. I mean, come on, there needs to be. Yes, that's why I only shop at Dress for Ross Dress for Less. <laughs> but uh, 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 never minding that. Um, that's why I was only nostalgic for one specific video store. You and I have been there, and we're talking about Hollywood Express on Commonwealth Ave in Somerville, Massachusetts, or on the Somerville Arlington border in Massachusetts. Uh, oh yes, that's the I only one I'm, well. I'm. I'm. I'm nostalgic for it because there also wasn't. This was at a t- we were visiting at a time when there wasn't new releases, so there wasn't like pressure to be a store. And it was like this perfect marriage of like, hey, if you want a new release, you could catch it streaming somewhere or video on demand. But if you want to like plumb the depths of uh, the most obscure or artful movies, uh, you could certainly go to a place like that and again physically interact with things. Not just it's not just the nostalgia of seeing those crappy, crummy 3D covers or say, finding Space Jam on, on VHS and Rent-A-Kid for the seventh time. It's... I think you're also forgetting that the most important aspect of the video store was the camaraderie. It was the store clerks. It was the I, I did not. I did not participate in any of that. Oh, <laughs> like, I know correct. exactly what Come I want. Come on, yeah. everyone, getting... everyone, everyone now worth their film bona fides has like that that story of like my first job working at a blockbuster is to take a long drag in their cigarette. Yeah, to take a long drag in their cigarette and say like I, I lamented people getting the latest Adam Sandler or Happy Madison release <laughs> instead exactly. uh, extolled the virtues of Fellini and and Tarantino. Like whatever nerd, I'm 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 here to get what I wanted and browse the shop silently. Nobody, I don't go to draw stress for less to um extol, to uh enter a, a Straussian reading of uh, certain <laughs> certain garments or whatever. Greg, I mean, if you're trying to keep up on the latest fashions, but you want to do it for less, you go to draw Ross dress for less, okay? No, I browse silently. No, <laughs> I, okay. I'm not there to engage in conversation. That I don't miss. That or right. ever engaged. I can't miss it because I never engaged in it. So. 
Uh, well, but, I mean, what what can we what can be done, Greg? The simple economics of it. Now, sadly, these stores just can't exist, and I'm surprised any retail exists. Period. Anymore. Yeah. Like, so, again, there's no arguing with the ease of finding something on demand or streaming. However, there is something very impersonal, and and there's no sense of ownership either. Like I was also. Sense there is no ownership. Yeah. (laughs) Even if you buy something on Amazon, like if you buy to own, you don't really own it. You're buying the license. So I own John Wick Chapter 3 Parabellum on Amazon because it was cheaper than renting it. It was like on a special deal. And I'm like, yeah, I want to watch it again because it's one of the greatest masterpieces ever committed to celluloid ever. Um, But I don't own it. And if Amazon ever says, hey, sorry, we lost the license to have that, they can yank it away. There's no recompense. There's no recourse I have if they ever decide that, oh, all digital copies of John Wick Chapter 3 shall be thrown away from existence. Goodbye forever. So yeah, so that's a disgusting practice. But I also want to I, I don't want to feel nostalgic for something that's taking up physical space in my tiny apartment. Like I don't, mm. that's the other thing too. I like e-readers are obviously so much, so much more useful than a, a physical book, especially when you're traveling. Yet I want a physical book when I'm traveling. <laughs> the same thing with a movie. Like I want a physical DVD, even though moving them and storing them is a pain in the ass. All those crappy. I mean, we still have, we have 90 million books of DVDs in our closet right now. that have just been collecting dust, yeah. unfortunately. So <laughs> Yeah, so uh, so John, what is to be done? What's what's our solution? What's the what's the dialectics here? What's the what's the synthesis? How how can we find a place? Is is it super curated? First of all, all these retail spaces are now going to be empty now that COVID has completely wiped them out. Um, exactly. So hopefully, uh, and the real estate market has crashed. So will maybe we can open a space? How specifically can we curate it though? Because that's here's the other thing. what I'm here's what I'm envisioning. Mm-hmm. I'm envisioning it going the way of karaoke, which is, you know, think of think of like karaoke spaces. You rent mm-hmm. these little booths and, you know, you get the machine and you get to hang out with your friends and just your friends. You don't have to interact with strangers if you don't want to. What if I'm thinking this more in like how does the theater space survive and how do we kind of mesh these two things? Yeah. Let's envision um, a small theater like we're talking like 12 seats at a time. And it has a DVD player connected to the projector. So you can just bring your own DVD. You rent out the space, but you just bring your own DVDs and watch them with your friends and family in this little tiny space. Yeah, or get the screening license for, say, Jurassic Park, which I know is now back to being a big (laughs) box office hit now that no new movies are coming out in 2020. Mm -hmm. Um, Say you get the license to screen however many times you want Jurassic Park, and it's like an option, like, say, the karaoke version of Beyonce Single Ladies or something. Like, Mm. you could choose that from a menu, and, hey, we're going to watch that while, say, enjoying drinks, or you're among 12 friends, so it's not like you're disrupting the screening experience when you're just chatting or pointing something. Or getting rowdy, yeah. Yeah, or getting a little rowdy. Cats or a Rocky Horror Picture Show or something that implies a certain level of frivolity when you watch it. So, Yeah. yeah, I think this is the future. I'm, you know... I just I'm kind of grateful, honestly, that that COVID has has sped up the inevitable end of theaters <laughs> as we knew them. That's true. It doesn't have to be. Like, I guess you don't need the scale of the space. Like I'm not missing that. I'm not missing mm-hmm. like a, a giant like what's the biggest theater I've been in? Five thousand seat theater, <laughs> and having to bump into people on my way to the bathroom or something. I'm not. I'm not missing that. Or Well, I, the thing that kind of ended the draw for me was there was one time we ended up going to a showing where it was so early the lights were still on, and I got to see what the theater actually looks like with all the lights on and just how 
disgusting that space is. <laughs> yeah, Just small how physically repulsive a theater actually is when all the lights are on. <laughs> that's that's a great point, John. S- much smaller spaces. That means cleaning's easier. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I think the staff has a, is probably a more enjoyable time. Like they don't have to put up with uh, screaming children. They're for you can have um, you can orient them to kids. Like say a birthday party. You can have and since it's more of a boutique experience, you have less of that kind of, oh, like, what are we doing tonight? Oh, let's just go to the movies. Oh, you have a more interesting, interested clientele, you know? Yes. So they're going to be naturally extension, extension-wise friendlier to the staff. So, yeah. Perfect. Okay. John, I think we have a business novel here. Copyright. Right. Nobody steal this. All right. We're editing this out. <laughs> um, I'll get our Shark Tank pitch deck going, okay? Yeah. <laughs> Perfect. I, those are the people to pitch it to. N- nothing but a track record of success for those people. <laughs> uh, hello, the Smiley Sponge, right? <laughs> smiley the, Sponge is the board thing. where you twist <laughs> that you sometimes see in Walgreens. <laughs> hey, man, if it's moving at Walgreens, you know it's a good idea. Yeah. But anyway, John, this is an unfinished idea, so you know what we have to do. Now we have to destroy it. Now it's it's done. It's over. Yep. That's true. Yep. yep. It ends inevitably, just like our lives. It ends, um, you know, maybe not quite fulfilled. So, mm. sorry. Also, have you been cheating on me? I feel like there's a lot of infidelity <laughs> and secrets between us. That uh, absolutely, like like every European movie, John, it has to be about infidelity <laughs> and being blasé about it as well. Um, all right, well, we've given too much of the game away. I guess we should talk about the movies that yes. we revisited this week. Yes. Hello. Um, welcome to the Aspiring Stops podcast. When you're not getting tremendous business advice, like the like the <laughs> idea that we just came up with, we're also talking about classic movies that we want to catch up with. Art House Fair or movies that have been previously lauded as classics that we haven't seen yet. And um, this one is definitely like in the art art house wheelhouse. This is definitely like a kind of required viewing for for anybody who wants to brag about like oh I saw this like wonderful Polish mm-hmm. film. Um, <laughs> we're talking about Krzysztof uh, Kierzelowski's uh, Three Colors trilogy. White or blue, white, and red. Blah, blah, I screwed it up already. It's blue, yeah. white, and red. Yeah, and I want to, I want to correct what I said last week. I thought this was three movies that um, he got funding for, and they all involved the same cast, only because the three posters. It looked like Juliette Binoche was on each of the three posters. Um, no, they're all three separate movies. Three, I'd say, somewhat different stories and different tones, and then uh, uh... three completely. Not really. <laughs> um, <laughs> well, you could tell that it's the same cinematographer, for one thing. Absolutely. They all look yep. gorgeous. And you could definitely tell that they have the same production design and costume designer. Because it's grays mm-hmm. on grays on gray. On hey, gray. hey, those those pops of colors, you could tell. I mean, that's, that's kind right. of cheating a little bit when you do name your movie after a single color. That's all you notice when you yeah. know, <laughs> in the cinematography. It's like exactly. those splashes of that color. So. Yes, exactly. When I saw when I saw the blue light in blue, I was like Leonardo DiCaprio pointing at himself <laughs> watching an episode of FBI. Like, yeah. There it is. There it is. <laughs> Yeah, so um, we've got three movies here uh, named Red, White, and Blue. Um, they are named they... for the uh, tricolor, the three colors on the French flag. 
mm-hmm. and representing the motto of France, which is liberté, equality, fraternity. Mm-hmm. Um, freedom, equality, uh, fraternity, or brotherhood. Yeah. I, yeah. <laughs> pretty yeah, clear. That, yeah. that, that high school French is really working out for you, isn't it? <laughs> it it's working out wonderfully. Exactly. Actually, I was, I was stunned. To, I've, I've been learning Russian lately, mm-hmm. and I'm stunned to see how, how similar Polish is to Russian. Every, every well, yeah, they're language pretty close. Apparently, yeah, I mean, every every language pretty much east of Germany is the same. It's it's amazing. No, yeah, that's pretty. Close. I thought yes. <laughs> I thought I've already offended Poles and uh, Ukrainians and enough, but in any event, <laughs> no, I, I I go the extra mile, Greg. <laughs> Although speaking of anti-Polish screeds, I mean that middle one, white, like oh, <laughs> yeah. <laughs> well, just probably the truest, most accurate depiction of Warsaw um, post post the fall of the Soviet Union. But anyway, that's really what the film is about. I thought they all took place in in France, based on the uh, Tricolore, um, and the first film starring Juliette Binoche and all these other lauded French actors. But it's actually really about European unification. I think that was the real impetus for this producer giving uh, this director Christoph Kolowski all this money to make three movies that is definitely that is definitely a theme running through all three of them or at least at one point there's a plot point involving yeah. like going to a different country or something like that so going to a different country and yeah this is, takes place in the early 90s the soviet union has obviously fallen the berlin wall has fallen so yeah there's a lot more kind of interconnectedness between all these european countries and um i think you see that most in the first movie set in France. Um, it stars Juliette Binoche. And, and like all European movies, it has to start with an unspeakable tragedy. In this case, um, <laughs> there's a car crash in the French countryside. Um, Juliette Binoche's character survive. However, her husband, a famous composer, and their six-year-old daughter have perished. And um, mm-hmm. she kind of comes to grip to that. Uh, how, how did you feel this movie reflected um, the theme of, of freedom and liberty? <laughs> oh my gosh, it was just like every ounce of uh, every ounce of the screen. I was just like, I feel free, and she yeah. feels free. It's great. It's like how Stella got her groove back. It's yeah. awesome. <laughs> freedom, yeah, just George Michael playing around in the background. I mean, these like. I really liked this movie. Like, I actually enjoyed watching it, even though it is, like, the most stereotypical... I call them puttering around the kitchen movies. It is, like, the most stereotypical, like, European art house fair, where it's, like, we get, like, 90 minutes of Julia Binoche just kind of going about her day. And it's the most banal stuff, but the symbolism underneath it is probably, like, ooh, just dripping. Um, the one thing that kind of sticks out to me is, like, I was reading the trivia, and they talked about how there's a scene where it's a close-up of a sugar cube. And they yeah. see the sugar cubes soaking up all the coffee or the tea or coffee or whatever co- coffee she's drinking coffee. Yeah. And it's like they had to test to see which you know sugar cube did the best observation. You know, it is completely not centered around the plot at all. It's not like it's a poison sugar cube or anything. There's no. not that much intrigue to it. It's just one quick you know insert shot of a close up of a sugar cube. <laughs> but it's like you know every ounce of this movie. It's like it's so banal but yet dripping in symbolism. So. Yeah, this first one, Blue, has about the least amount of story, yet the way it's directed is immaculate. I'd say it's the best of these three movies, mm-hmm. and it's because of those shots like that, which, as you said, have no bearing on the story, yet they kind of convey so much. I mean, I love the opening moments where it's like we're in the French countryside, and there's a dense fog, and the little girl has to go um, make a pit stop, and then we see the it's a close-up of the actually the brakes underneath the uh, underneath the car, 
and the brake fluid dripping while the girl runs back to the car. And so it's like the, all these beautifully like organized shots. And you could definitely see he had the most amount of energy to put into wonderful shots like that, or the sugar cube, or Juliette Pinoche tracing her fingers along an unfinished piece of music, and the and the chorus comes in as she passes over each note like beautifully. So yeah, it's definitely like the best directed and most I'd say like artistically ambitious of these three movies because. It is all about the internal life of this poor, this widow, this widow who's suffered again this unspeakable tragedy, and she she wants it to she wants to feel liberated because of it. She wants to say like I don't want any more like personal connection. I'm not going to cry over these two these deaths in my family. I'm going to remove all my possessions. I'm going to sell my house, my my big yeah, country self destruction is a big thing. Like she literally yeah. tries to kill herself in the opening scene and she can't manage to do it. So for the rest of the movie, it's her slowly kind of whittling away her own self, her own like willingness to live, which is kind of messed up, but it makes for very compelling filmmaking. Yes. <laughs> makes for very compelling filming and what kind of draws her back isn't like the most i'd say like powerful stuff i mean maybe we expect a big bombastic romance to like pull her back and realize like oh i shouldn't give up all these emotional connections but instead <laughs> it's it's with uh her her ex her mister her escort um this collaborator named olivier uh who she's with and he kind of pulls her back it's so boring like she's just like all right let's fuck whatever yeah who cares <laughs> yeah she has a neighbor who uh they, who who also works as a prostitute and her landlord wants to kick her out, but Julia Pinoche like bristles at that, and so again, not not huge like drama in spite of the uh, the orchestral score always like jumping in, but uh, it's still like compelling nonetheless. And I wanted to see what you thought of music plays a big part in this. Her late husband was composing this piece that was supposed to celebrate European unification, and it comes in and out. Uh, while she's, she's, as you said, puttering around the kitchen or this empty country estate or this new apartment in, in Paris. And, um, like, sometimes it signals something, like, major happening in her life when she has this interaction. Or banal. It doesn't matter. But, like, yeah. it'll fade out. There'll be this big musical sting. And then she'll come back, like, right right a moment later. It's not like it's it's flashing forward in time. Instead, it's just a moment later. It's like we we took this blackout sequence just to bring bring you right back. And I was wondering what you thought of that. Or, I um, kind of take it because it's the only movie that employs it. Uh, yeah, and that's three. that's the only like playing with the editing that he does. Comparatively speaking to the other three, like you're absolutely right. Like this one has kind of the most compelling like kind of energy to it, and it's because of moments like that where he kind of like fades to black, the music blares, and then it comes back, and it's like, and yeah, I thought that was kind of like interesting. The music itself, I don't know, it's like it's 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 kind of like hidden in the background until the end like it kind of works up to it like you're not mm-hmm. you know it's supposed to be this amazing piece of you know music that's meant to unify europe so yeah. it's like <laughs> <laughs> so you know it's like it's got this choral aspect and i think it was most interestingly used towards the end where she finally decides all right fine i will help finish it because initially you know she's trying to tear everything down she didn't want to finish it she was she threw out all the sheet music she didn't care yeah and then at the end you know when she actually starts collaborating olivier um you know like she's tracing her fingers and it's like no 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 less flutes and then we hear it again but less flutes you know like that that's really interesting like that like the kind of music creation aspect and how you adapt that to film i thought was was quite interesting as well Mm -hmm. um like going back to the actual story like the whole point of the fact that 
oh, her husband's a celebrated composer who's dead now. What does she do with that? Well, it's like heavily implied that she was actually the collaborator or the writer of a lot of these pieces. And, you know, as someone who should want to get her due, she should be the one to finish it and kind of finally proclaim, I'm the one who did all this. I'm the I'm the true composer. But it's like, yeah. obviously, she doesn't want to celebrate that. You know, she's got that too much of that internal conflict, that pain to really celebrate that. Well, Olivier does make that a caveat. Like, he does say, like, if we're going to finish this, we have to acknowledge our participation in it and step out from backstage and say, like, hey, we've helped the, at least collaborated with the with your late husband on this music and not just have him be this kind of star of the show. Um, mm-hmm. But, yeah, it's 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 gorgeously directed. I'm just like now I'm in a Proustian reverie about all those shots like <laughs> she can't physically attend the funeral. But we see this like on this little portable TV. And when she wakes up from this coma, she's in the doctor or who's ever breaking the bad news is like seen in the reflection of her light it's it's beautifully done and so i i'd say if you if you are going to check out one of these three films blue is definitely the best and we should also explain the one to start with because you do kind of have to see them in chronologically because we don't see at least at this rate like any any signs of the other two stories or how they connect but no um, um And there's really only one, uh, besides the final, like the final, final scene of the final, final movie, there's only one thing that ties all three together. And that is a woman, an old woman, trying to put recycling away. There's also a message of saving the planet (laughs) about you doing your part. Give a hoot, don't pollute. <laughs> exactly. That's I think that's the main message of, of all these three films. Well, the other thing that unites them, John, is they all end in tears. Um, oh, that's absolutely true. Yeah. Yes, because this is a European film. So. Yeah. <laughs> and story-wise, this one ends because she doesn't really allow herself. She's closed herself off emotionally into this incredible tragedy, and it's not until the very end, once this music's completed, that she allows herself to cry. And so, like, it, it works out from a story perspective, like how it kind of bring, builds up to that climactic moment. So... Very good. Even though story is very thin in terms of events or, say, characters growing in, in obvious ways, like it it does lead up to the, a, a pretty emotion, a pretty big climax. So that's why I love this one the most of these three. Yeah. And um, I, I've I've complained. Yes, this is by by definition a puttering around the kitchen movie. However. Yeah. If you got, if you need to have one actor who's puttering around the kitchen, let it be Julia Binoche. Because, oh, absolutely! Goodness gracious! <laughs> Damn! Um, but that's not what we're here for, John. All right, we're not. Sorry, we're not. We're not just here for uh, just to oogle over the ladies. Okay, if, if we wanted that, we would go to the video It's because store. she's such a good we would actress. Go behind the yes. She's just just such a good actress. Okay. Yes. All right. If we wanted that, we would go behind the beaded curtain at, at video at Hollywood Express. All right. We're not doing that. Instead, we're moving on to the the worst of these three. Um, oh yes. <laughs> the one that doesn't even take place in France for most of it. No. <laughs> Well, neither does the second. I thought the third one did until halfway through the movie. I'm like, oh, they're somewhere else. But anyway, um, they're speaking French. But mm. uh, no, this one t- most takes mostly takes place in cold, miserable Poland. It's <laughs> it's it's white, and it centers around a a, a putz, a guy named Carol Carol, um, who, played by Zygmunt Zaczkowicz. John, come on, don't insult uh, Poland's most handsome man. All right. <laughs> 
<laughs> he's got a great character actor face, which yeah. is damning with fine praise. Yeah. <laughs> Yeah, imagine like oh boy, like I I got to watch Julia Pinoche, uh, the the exquisite Julia Pinoche for ninety minutes. What what am I moving on to now? Um. <laughs> yeah, this movie. I mean, all of the plots of these movies are pretty thin. This one is definitely the thinnest. Um, it starts off with uh, this pud getting yeah. divorced in French court. He doesn't even speak the language. He has an interpreter and he has like, it, it seems like half the time he doesn't even know what's going on. Mm-hmm. And this woman is divorcing him. Like it's all these embarrassing questions. Like if they consummated their relationship and you know, if they really loved each other, it's, it's humiliating. And for the whole, like, I thought the big reveal was going to be like, oh, this was like some kind of like Dom sub relationship thing where it's like <laughs> he pays her to humiliate him or something like that. Like, because yeah. it was like so kind of like over the top and cartoonish to kind of start. Like, it's really hard to get invested in from the story there. And the rest of the story ends up being like the slow motion Hitchcock thriller where it's like, aha, my revenge. Yeah. <laughs> I, I'll disagree with you there. It, in sharp relief to the other film, this is a, more designed to be a comedy. Um, it, as a, oh, it's, it's a European comedy, but so. it's a European comedy, so very droll. I, I, it opens. You won't not find just yourself this, laughing. Yeah, this putts like I think the first joke is that uh, outside the courthouse, a bird poops on him. That's that's the first big joke, and from here it's just like the the misadventures of Carol Carol, because it, he's after this divorce, he's left with no money, and he has to. Emigrate. He gets this very strange offer to to kill a man um, mm-hmm. uh, who wants to die. Oh, oh um, that's actually another kind of a reoccurring theme in all three movies, which is deep conversations with complete strangers. Yes. Like, <laughs> just two strangers in the night, just like, hey, would you be willing to kill me? Like, yeah. <laughs> I didn't or, expect the night to go this way. <laughs> yes. One of whom thinks life is meaningless. And... <laughs> I'll explain that to a complete stranger, but yeah, this opening, it's its not, it's very droll, and then it keeps intercutting with a, a large suitcase that's going through customs and in an airport, and I thought, right, there's there's not going to be somebody in that suitcase, is there? That'd be ridiculous, and of course, of course there is. It's him. He has to be smuggled back into Warsaw. Uh, the, the suitcase gets stolen, so he's left, he winds up in a landfill, mm-hmm. and so, yeah, it's like, the first half of the movie is this guy uh, being uh, shattered by life, or like this kind of contrived comedy, very droll, not very funny, and and the second half is when we finally see this this plan for revenge against his wife, played by the exquisite, not not as beautiful as a uh, Julia Pinoche, but as Julie Depty and a Delpy, another mm-hmm. like a wonderful French actress. She's not in it for like seventy percent of this ninety-minute movie. So. We get to hear her having sex over the phone, but yeah, that's, yeah, that's mo- <laughs> that's most of her presence throughout the much of the film. So yeah. But he he concocts a scheme now that now that Poland's open for business, um. <laughs> he buys up this land and is able yeah. to sell it at an exorbitant amount and just kind of keep re- like he becomes like this importer and his yeah. business practices are a bit uh, unscrupulous, but he's able to you know kind of take now a post-Soviet Union Warsaw like kind of use the the corruptness to his advantage. So yeah, <laughs> and so well, while this one's not as brilliantly directed as blue is there's no like close-up shots there's no like 
using the the camera to enhance drama. It's all done much wider, like uh, with the exception of the actual suicide scene, as we discussed. Like yes, uh, you know, like he again, he's like kind of looking for odd jobs and money's wherever he can get it. So this man, this stranger that he meets, says like, if you're looking for a job, you know, I've got a friend who needs who wants to kill himself, but you know, he doesn't have the gall to do it. And so yeah. he obviously takes up the offer, and then he finds the man is actually oh, it was me the whole time. <laughs> yeah. Um, that scene was actually, you know, full of a lot of tension, and that's the only scenes where I kind of, like, stood straight. I was like, ooh, what's going to happen? Um, he ends up shooting him, and then reveals, that was a blank. Are you sure you still want to go through with this? Yeah. And now the man kind of realizes, I have second thoughts. Yeah. Mental, and, yeah. you know, and it kind of speaks back to, like, their friendship as well, which I thought was kind of nice. So, um, that's the only part for me where White came alive, because you're yeah. right, this is definitely the worst of the three. Yeah. Well, it, it came alive in that, and, and also while while we're not using the, the cinematography or the camera angles to really convey high drama, what I did admire was the editing, because as you said, there, or as I said, what am I saying? <laughs> I mentioned like intercutting like this guy's divorce proceedings with a... a big suitcase going through like and you can kind of connect the two in your head like okay he's going to be like somebody's going to wind up in that suitcase or it's going to have some importance um i love the the moment we we kind of see him concoct this plan he does uh go through with this scheme to buy up buy up all this uh buy up all this farm for these warehouses and and is the people he scammed do capitulate and the very next scene he's gordon gecko he's getting yeah. out of his volvo limousine <laughs> Well, and I mean, don't even the, the Warsaw Poland version. So he's yeah. like, it's not a, it's not a Mercedes. It's a Volvo. Yeah. <laughs> and it was, ooh, Volvo, nice. <laughs> a maroon Volvo. Yeah. <laughs> in all its boxy glory. Yes. <laughs> as you said, maroon. So it wasn't as obvious in terms of the color choices. It's not. He's not wearing a white suit in a white car. In <laughs> there you go. <laughs> in a snow-covered Warsaw. It's yeah. It's a sensible choice. <laughs> yes. But I do like that. And then, fi- but. Yeah, it's a scheme to finally come to fruition, and it doesn't make sense, and it's absurd. He he arranges his own funeral, basically, to draw his ex-wife back to Poland to attend. Mm-hmm. Um, to he's to kind of on... see if she still has feelings for him, because she actually shows up to the funeral, and she cries. Yes. So it's like, she did obviously care about him to a certain extent. Yes. Um, she springs on her that she's alive that he's alive um this this leads to the consummation of their marriage finally Mm -hmm. um yet yet somehow they suspect her as being guilty of his murder and so she goes to jail um and then the final shot that the the oddest contrivance of tears um (laughs) she even though she goes to see her in prison I, i guess secretly like he uses his business connections to actually get into the prison rather than standard visitation and she sees him through the window and she's still like oh i still love you when i get out um because this is a <laughs> polish prison so you know the maximum sentence is six weeks um, <laughs> and, and he's like oh yes like now that now that she's learned her sentence now that she's served a six week six week prison sentence we can now uh we can now continue our marriage i guess i guess yeah i guess that's the main takeaway um yeah, it, it's not a very compelling story, not very well directed or um, compellingly told. So, yeah, this one, this one's a whiff. Yeah, that's the kind of, like, after watching this one, I was kind of pondering, like, okay, he he obviously had these movies in his head. He wanted yeah. to tell these stories. What made him decide, I'm going to bundle them all as a, as a trilogy? 
because like there's really not like we said like the only kind of connecting tissue is there's this woman who's trying to recycle something this old woman who can't reach the the top end and it's like she appears in the first movie she appears in the second movie it's only in the third one that we kind of get some resolution because this because a character actually sees her and actually helps her put the recycling away and we hear it actually crunch so and besides those themes of like European unification and like infidelity, like there's not a lot of like connective tissue between these three movies. And so I kind of wonder, did he just have three scripts, three stories that he wanted to tell? And he was just like, oh, I know how to sell these, baby. All right, yeah. Canal, <laughs> Studio Canal, let's chat. I've got a trilogy for you guys. A three picture deal. <laughs> I, you might be right because they they are. Th- that's not the only way in which they're similar. Now they think about it, they all take place also it evolved around justice and the justice system because mm. like um in the in the first movie blue julia pinoche learns that her late husband had an affair with a barrister like a lawyer mm-hmm. um in this movie it's obviously like the first scene takes place in the courthouse and this kind of kangaroo court where he's embarrassed not kangaroo court but he's like deeply embarrassed by the judge and in the last movie red one of the major characters is a retired judge who's eaves- eavesdropping on people and um when this is but when um, this young woman basically like draws out of it, like, don't you feel ashamed? Like, yes, he does, and and yeah. does <laughs> does turn himself into this major crime. So uh, there are a lot of commonalities in them. I think where it might have gone wrong is also trying to switch up tone or I guess the the style in which these movies are made, because like the first one really does like is really a home run of style in terms of like really conveying like what this woman's feeling. Here, here, it's more of a miss, like trying to do droll comedy and and mm-hmm. contriving like this ridiculous story about a a guy who's who's able to build himself to be Poland's <laughs> richest man in a year after I don't know, buying a farm for I don't know, like five hundred francs, like yeah, it's yeah. A, or Zlati, whatever it is. Um, so yeah, yeah, I think that maybe that's where it goes wrong, and it definitely f- fails in the prompt to make this movie about uh, the, the the second value. Uh, equality or not equality yes it is equality because mm-hmm. um, i because i don't see like where the equality is this feels like a like a men's right jerimad about like <laughs> i guess yeah i mean the only kind of equality is that she embarrasses him and then he embarrasses her like you yeah. know they both use the law to their own advantage by the end but mm-hmm. yeah there's no and again like it's it's so kind of over the top and unreal. I mean, but maybe it is realistic. I don't know. It's like I guess that's also kind of the thing. It's like the story is so kind of cartoonish, but it still maintains this kind of like realistic style. So it's like it it doesn't feel like elevated enough where it's like oh I'm supposed to laugh, but again I'm an American, so it's like I've been trained. Where's the laugh track? How am I supposed yeah. to know when to laugh? <laughs> no, well you you would laugh if it was funny, but like, <laughs> there yeah, you getting go. pooped on. <laughs> Yeah, or or dumped in the landfill. Like, yeah, not yeah. exactly. Not this God's is blessing. Jack Tati bullshit. That's what this yeah. is. <laughs> Shots fired. Anyway, Shots fired. John, yeah, let's let's rope it back. All right, let's let's ramp it up into a more positive direction. And I think that's what the conclusion read. Starring Julia Binoche, so you know you know. Actually... <laughs> Almost, I thought it. I thought it was Julia Binoche, but oh, it's not. Yeah. <laughs> it's no, Irene oh, Jacob. No, no, 
No, yeah, it's a switch up. She looks very similar, um, mm-hmm. but that's Irene Jacob. Mm-hmm. Uh, and she's also French and, and exquisitely beautiful t- because she plays a model in this one. <laughs> yep. That's another, I guess that's another theme that these th- movies share is that uh, uh, the main, the job of the main character doesn't really mm-hmm. relate to the adventure they have. <laughs> no. <laughs> well, sort of. We see, we see her day to day. This takes place in Geneva. Mm-hmm. Um, so everybody's speaking French. Uh, I guess, I, I don't know if, if that's the primary language of of switzerland or german or italian whatever it's fine um but um we see her kind of go about her day and uh there's another storyline uh that doesn't really intersect but it's uh the other main character is uh, her neighbor and we see them kind of uh, proximate to one another and um they both got long distance relationships like he's got a a a a somewhat intimate relationship with a a woman on the phone who's offering personalized weather reports (laughs) like say like hey i gotta i gotta drive to turin italy like what's the weather like there (laughs) and she's like well oh beautiful gorgeous you won't believe it darling like it comes up very trumpian (laughs) yeah (laughs) Not a cloud in the sky. You won't believe it. It's amazing. It's going to be great. Exactly. She's unbelievably charming. So, of course, Auguste, our, our aspiring judge, like uh, mm-hmm. falls in love with her immediately. So they've got kind of this uh, this over-the-phone relationship. And then our other character, our main character, played by Irene Jacob, uh, Jacob um, shoot, what's her name? Uh, Valentine. Mm-hmm. Um, again, going on the red theme. Um, she's going about her life as a model until um, she accidentally hits a dog. This this movie's very convoluted and requires, <laughs> like, yeah. I'd say there's a lot more energy to it. Like, the opening mm-hmm. shot is, as I said, these a lot of these relationships take place over the phone. So the opening shot sees it, like, the camera going down yeah. the wire across the English Channel and... And yeah, going back to like, I was like, the her role as a model kind of sent, felt disconnected, but I guess it kind of ties back into the theme of like voyeurism, because she yeah. eventually meets this judge who, it, the, the dog belongs to this judge. She tries to return the dog. He doesn't seem to be very interested in having the dog no, back. Yeah. Again, a stranger who's a complete nihilist. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> This man's a coward, Donnie. <laughs> don't you don't you want to have a deep conversation while I'm sitting here? Like, come on, aren't you gonna let me in? Have some tea? What's going on? I know. Don't my nihilistic views intrigue you? <laughs> but so okay, he it turns out he's tapping the phone as a hobby. Um, yes. You know, not that she's like inquiring too much about it, but she, like, and like. She obviously is like aghast about this. Like, you know, she covers her ears. She's like aghast. She's like, I simply cannot. <laughs> um, which is weird because I guess, yeah, in contrast to the fact that she's a model, she's putting herself out there all the time and also getting hit on all the time. Like, again, infidelity yeah. is a, a major plot point in all three. She has this long distance relationship, which, you know, we think is stable at the beginning. And then we kind of, you know, the insidious jealousy kind of like seeps in. You yeah. Know? A photographer hits on her. She kind of rebuffs him. And there's a moment where she can't answer the phone when she said she was. And, you know, the the man on the other end is, is very angry. Her boyfriend like, reacts very negatively. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Like, who were you with? Why couldn't you answer right away? Yeah. Very pos- yeah. possessive stuff. And it's the same. Like, we're also following Auguste, um, who, again, like, isn't interacting with this story at all. But we see him, like, he's, he's very taken by this woman offering personal, like, weather reports to mm-hmm. whoever's willing. And then... He sneaks, or he sneaks up on her at her office and sees that she's, I, I guess, having an affair. Or they do know each other. I guess yeah. this this relationship's more personal than letting on because she gives him a, a gift, a very fancy pen. Now that he's going to be a judge or like a certified judge. Mm-hmm. Well, no, they, and there's also that scene where they meet on the courthouse steps, where he kind of 
you know, they excitedly exclaim, like, I'm going to be a judge. And they're like, yay. Yeah. So it's like, yeah. They, <laughs> yeah. That, but, this one is a little bit more clunky, like, in that yeah. way. Like, <laughs> like, all right, like, hey, I'm going to be a judge. Oh, I love you. Like, um, yeah, it's, it's got same, the same, it's got the same energy and style as Blue. Yeah. Um, but you're right, like, story-wise, it goes through a bit more loops and uh, kind of has a bit more levels of contrivances because it's like... Yeah, the, the way that the, our model meets this uh, surly retired judge who's eaves, eavesdropping on people is, like, uh, like she accidentally hits his dog. Um, he doesn't care. Mm-hmm. and then she, But the dog runs away back to the house, and so they meet again. And then um, in the more most convoluted thing, like, she actually accepts the eavesdropping when she finds out that one of his neighbors that he's listening into is like the biggest dope dealer yeah. in in Geneva, and her brother happens to be um, a recovering addicted, drug addict. Uh, yeah, a recovering drug or a practicing drug addict, because we see on the newspaper on the front A one page A one is a picture of people just shooting up on the on the courthouse steps of Geneva, um, and everybody recognizes this low res black and white photo on the front page. Hey, that's your brother. <laughs> Because I don't know anything goes in Geneva, the party capital of the world. <laughs> and it's like they they leave the paper for her for her to peruse, I guess. So yeah, yeah it's very it's very strange. It's very strange. Yeah. It's very convoluted. But as you said, it has a lot more style, a lot more energy. Um, it it feels more closely connected to the final idea of fraternity, because like this 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 model is very moral. Like she's obviously mm-hmm. like puts her foot down to this guy's eavesdropping and does like does convince him to do the moral thing and turn himself in and, and act more justly. Um, yeah, and just like um, oh, the last movie we talked about, White, you know, it's like this happenstance where these two strangers end up meeting and it's mm-hmm. kind of contentious at first, but it ends up being like a really deep friendship. They end up, you know, like confiding in each other how they feel and it's also nice, you know, like they didn't end up like hooking up because, yeah. <laughs> you know, everything in these movies feels a little bit too oversexed. Like the fact that they have like a nice platonic relationship between a man and a woman is just kind of a breath of fresh air. <laughs> Mm, disappointing. Not sexed enough. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> Let's see that old creaky man get his get his rocks off. That old judge. <laughs> yep. That's what she. That's how she could have saved him. It's yeah. like, let me show you how to really live, baby. Yeah. <laughs> uh, but then, speaking of contrivances, uh, yeah. there's a show where she takes place in, and this is after he's already confessed and after they've kind of like kindled this friendship. Yeah. Uh, he shows up. They have kind of like a heart to heart in the theater, and then the storm blows in. Whoosh, <laughs> like. <laughs> And it's apparently like so bad, like a portion of the stage like floods or something. It's it's pretty ridiculous and a little over the top. And I was, yeah, kind I'm of, assuming that's because every building in Geneva is from like 1420 or something. That is also <laughs> yes, that is also true. And like that's that's the frustrating thing about these movies is like again, like everything kind of feels banal, but you know that it's drenched in symbolism, and mm-hmm. also you never quite know what the foreshadowing is going to be. So when that storm kind of like blew in, I was like, oh, that's weird. But obviously it's building towards something. They've been talking a lot about, oh, she's going to go to London. She's going to visit her husband. Should she take the plane or should she take the ferry? Turns yeah. out she's taking a ferry. <laughs> he calls the weather, the personalized weather lady. Oh, um, what's, yeah. the, what's the weather going to be like? Beautiful. Not a cloud in the sky. <laughs> it's going to be fabulous. Yeah, so, the for- foreshadowing is just dripping. Like, yeah. <laughs> Not only is this weather lady, oh, a whore, but she's also bad at her job. So, <laughs> yeah. A storm blows in on the English Channel. The, the, our judge, like, uh, they say a, a nice, sweet goodbye. Um, mm-hmm. Again, like, the, the clouds literally, like, for, foreshadowing, <laughs> uh, portending something something terrible is going to happen. Um, he sees the news that um, 
yeah, the ferry is capsized and, and only has seven survivors. I, speaking of contrivances, this is one of the, again, otter touches, because no news report actually gives the identity <laughs> of survivors and gives them close-ups on the news. But yeah. in any event, we see after this terrible event, there's only seven survivors. And who are they? All the stars of our three movies. And so oh. other than like... So it's yeah. like Magnolia. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. So this is all, our final Magnolia moment. Everything's connected. Mm-hmm. Um uh, forget the other 1,400 people who <laughs> perished in this <laughs> very accident. What's really important is that Ju- Julia Binoche is still with us. Um, yes. <laughs> and again, like we complained about, like, Julia Binoche showed up, and I thought it was Julia Binoche, and then we see, oh, the model survived too. You can't yeah. tell the difference between these two soaked women, <laughs> They look very similar. Yes, they look very similar. But I still like this movie. As you said, it, it leads to a very nice friendship between these two does reflect the idea of fraternity does connect with the other two like as we said like finally that old lady or old man whichever it's a little gender ambiguous um, mm-hmm. to whoever it is um does finally get the the bottle into the recycling bin so you know i i think it does come to a, a nice smooth landing a, a nice conclusion well it's kind of funny it's like it's it like the first like again blue we agree is like the the best of these three yeah. White, by far, is the worst of these three. And then red ends up being kind of like somewhere in the middle because it has like the strengths of the first one, but also the weaknesses of the second one as well. So, mm-hmm. yeah, like going as a broad overview, I do kind of recommend all three of these movies. And I think you should check them out and you do need to kind of see them, even though, you know, your quality and viewing experience may vary between the three. I do think that as a three, three separate pieces, they do work as a whole and they are better than the sum of their parts. I don't know how you feel like watching all three back to back because that can also be a bit exhausting trying to watch three art house. Films yeah, watch it. Yeah, don't watch all three like together. I think because um, because it, it can be it, again these are European dramas. It can be a bit of a chore, um, particularly that second one where I said like the the camera shots are wider, less intimate, doesn't have the power that the first movie had. So it be, it became a slog, and so. Yeah, like really definitely tune into that first one. I think like as a piece, if you just want like one exceptional film of those three, like Blue is definitely it. Um, with Red being like on the level of good and strangely enough for a lot of trilogies, like I always like the middle chapter, like mm-hmm. Empire Strikes Back is obviously the best Star Wars movie here. And Two Towers is my favorite of the Lord of the Rings trilogy. But yeah, White is, is kind of the one to skip. And and if you, if you do just want to like expose yourself to some more European cinema, I'd say blue is like kind of the way to go, but they do kind of work together, and and I do think it's a somewhat an achievement of filmmaking to kind of throw throw together these three disparate stories in three different ways, and um, yeah, they do work together as a piece, but it, it's it's more of an art piece where it feels like homework, it feels mm-hmm. a little difficult, so. <laughs> And especially after the highs of that first one. Like, so, consumer advice, just watch the first one. Um, artistic uh, film uh, film critic. Um, <laughs> a wonderful expression, wonderful achievement by Kurzlowski here. Um, yes. So. I think definitely worthy of um, Roger Ebert's great essay or great movies 
collection. Um, I'm not sure if it ranks as, as Empire Magazine did in 2010. It's the 11th best film trilogy of all time. Um, we'll have to adjudicate that later. Who knows? But Well, um, they're all included in the 1001 movies you need to see before you die, so it's always fun to know we checked off a few more off that list. So. I guess so, yeah. <laughs> but again, every movie's on there. So, <laughs> uh, Excuse me, Greg. Uh, Boss Baby's not included on there, unfortunately. <laughs> okay. And I keep trying. I keep advocating. I keep sending them angry letters every week after week. Sadly, they have not come back to me. No. That one's also about the unification of Europe. Um, <laughs> again, limited resources. How do we dole them out? Like all the babies represent the different nations, guys. And some love is not love is not a finite resource. Okay, there's enough love for everybody. D- no, disagree. Okay, <laughs> the one baby represents Greece. Like can't can't find can't make up the love deficit. All right, they're they're being pulled the strings by Alec Baldwin's boss baby, who's obviously Germany in this case. Mm, that's true. Yeah. A lot of Angela Merkel vibes, totally. Yeah. <laughs> That's why in the in the sequel, Boss Baby Two, they've got a girl boss now. She's mm-hmm. Angela Merkel. Yep. There you go. Mm-hmm. I just hope at the end, Boss Baby holds up a sign that says "You're welcome." At the end. God damn the <laughs> the brass balls on that guy. <laughs> You're welcome. What happened? To, what happened to leaving public life like he promised like ten years ago? <laughs> Anybody remember that? God, how much better the world would be. Um, <laughs> Trump wouldn't be president, I think. Yeah, I mean, we can only... Honestly, it's like, it's weird for him to say you're welcome when it's probably his fault. (laughs) Yeah, (laughs) exactly. It's exactly his fault. Uh, But enough about SNL, because God knows that's that's a dog that needs to be put out to pastures. Yeah. (laughs) I just want to take Lauren Michael upstate upstate New York and say, you're free, you're free. Oh, that's better. I want to take him to the glue factory. <laughs> <laughs> okay, uh, before we get uh, a band or like too many mm-hmm. reports, um, let's let's bring the folks back with an earnest recommendation in our signature section, Spotlight. 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 It's time, Robbie. It's time. Spotlight. Dun, 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 night, so I got to catch up on a documentary. Um, <laughs> that, that while exquisite I was, French, Sean. Yes. Chef's kiss. <laughs> um, I got to catch up on the Disney Plus original documentary, Howard. Which one's this one? Howard. Is this about Tim Howard, the U.S. No, goalkeeper? No, this is the. Okay. This is about Howard Ashman. And oh right, uh, I can Howard say Ashman. yes, and I can famed, say famed, def- uh, famed songwriter. Um, mm-hmm. All the beloved, uh, a lot of beloved classics from Disney to Broadway. Yep. And I'm as and on the one hand, I'm glad he's getting the documentary treatment. However, I can definitively say the definitive record of Howard Ashman, I think, is left incomplete. Oh, um, no. yes, John, is this a hagiography? Is this a is this a fawning portrait that doesn't get into? It is a fawning portrait. Um, yeah. and it does. Here's the thing: they go more uh, probably into, deservedly so. Yeah, they do go into more detail than I want to give them that I would give them credit for. I yeah. I thought they would try to, they do try to sugarcoat the AIDS diagnosis, um, I think a little bit. I'll get more into that in a bit, but uh, to give a little background, Howard Ashman, um, him and his uh, partner, oh, fuck, what is Alan Menken. Um, him and his partner, Alan Menken, it kind of goes through their- Songwriting his, partner, not life partner. <laughs> yes. No, that's a different, that's a different partner. He's had several yeah. partners. This, this one's different. Um, <laughs> oh, gosh. Anyway. Oh uh, well, act- okay. So Alan Menken, uh, it kind of uh, it t- it goes through his whole life. Uh, one of the weird things about this documentary, uh, it's only in voiceover. There's no talking heads, so it's okay. like they interviewed a whole bunch of people, but you don't actually see them. All you do is you see production stills, and um, 
just kind of like behind the scenes photos and stuff like that a lot of photos from his life but it's just kind of a little disconnected and it feels kind of like cheap like you know like this was done in iMovie or something like that um, but one of the most interesting things that they do stylistically which kind of got like kind of like threw me for a loop is they show the animatics and the final like product of something like from like the little mermaid like the whole production but then they'll use howard ashman's like b-roll like him actually performing it so it's weird to see ariel with howard ashman's voice <laughs> coming out of it <laughs> okay <laughs> yeah but again like it it goes to show like part of what made him such an asset to disney was the fact that he kind of embedded himself in the creative process from like step one he was hired by um jeffrey katzenberg um I feel like they could have been a little bit more uh, uh, kind of, there could have been a more kind of critical eye towards Howard Katzenberg <laughs> or not Howard Katzenberg, uh, Jeffrey Katzenberg. Cause uh, mm-hmm. you know, he's, he's kind of a divisive figure in the world of Hollywood, but yeah. you know, they, Disney has nothing, but well, they don't really talk about him all that much. And I think I know why, <laughs> <laughs> but he was hired by Jeffrey Katzenberg to just basically punch up, write some songs for this new musical they've got coming out called Little Mermaid. Yeah. Howard comes in and says like, no, 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 no. If I'm going to write songs for this, they have to build off each other. There's a whole structure to this you have to follow. So he kind of embeds himself into the whole story's, you know, telling process. And again, like, kind of rewrites the whole thing from the ground up. He's the one who's like, hey, that little crab character who's really cute, why don't you make him Jamaican? Like, come on, let's like have some fun with it, guys. <laughs> so, it, like, he he gave, like, 120% to, like, all these products because, again, like, he knew to have a complete story and to have like a really good musical everything needs to work from the ground up so he kind of embedded himself and kind of like helped rewrite everything from the ground up mm-hmm. um so unfortunately though this is still kind of like a disney product so it doesn't really like take a critical eye to disney everything is kind of like fun oh, yeah. it's like you know it kind of it kind of recognizes the kind of dire straits that Disney was in prior to, you know, the Disney Renaissance and before they started getting back into musicals and before Howard Ashman kind of came on, but it doesn't really kind of like go into too much detail about, you know, the box office failures of the great mouse detective. (laughs) Um, And it probably could have talked more critically about, you know, Jeffrey Katzenberg. It does have that anecdote famously, you know, Jeffrey Katzenberg watched, you know, the, the dailies of, uh, or, you know, the dailies of, Little Mermaid and said, like, part of your world, kind of slow. Everyone's going to get bored. Cut it. And Howard Ashman goes, over my dead body, you're cutting that musical number. (laughs) Nice. But, you know, Howard Ashman was a gay man who unfortunately Mm. passed from complications due to AIDS. And so it it covers that portion of his life in, in more detail, you know. And it even goes so far as to talk about how, like, Howard Ashman tried his hardest to hide the fact that he was gay and that he was, you know, diagnosed with AIDS because Disney is a family-friendly company and wanted to project a family-friendly image. And I, I have a sneaking suspicion with this documentary. They wanted to talk about that, but they also still wanted to put, like, the Disneyfied version of it. So... <laughs> Like, they they fawn over the fact that, you know, he was, like, a simple man who was, like, just wanted, like, a good family. <laughs> you know, like, they talked to his partner he, he was with, you know, prior to his death and, you know, how, like, you know, they had, like, good traditional family values, even though it was, like, oh, you know, like, this poor AIDS, you know, diagnosis, yeah. like, kind of. So they're still kind of, like, putting this kind of, like, heteronormative sheen on it, even though they are, like, kind of discussing the fact that he was gay and he was diagnosed with AIDS. And it's, like, they talk about his partner he had prior when he originally moved to New York, like, in the late 70s, early 80s, was Stuart. 
and Stuart was kind of like the rambunctious one, you know, the one who kind of like took advantage of the bacchanalia that was gay, mm. gay, gay New York in the 70s. This is Freddie Mercury all over again. Exactly. So it's like... He was on the straight and narrow, and then the gay caught him. And... <laughs> well, no, it's like, that's that's the thing that kind of bothers me. It's like, they kind of put all the onus on, like, Stuart. Stuart was the irresponsible one. <laughs> yeah. Howard oh, was gosh. the safe one. You know, it's like, you know, but, yeah, like... Like it kind of left a bad taste in my mouth the way they were trying to spin it. So yeah. I'm a little disappointed in that. Even though it is it is a nicely well made documentary, and if it weren't Disney making it, I could assume that it was going to be more powerful, more impactful, and more honest. But unfortunately, you know, this is a Disney product, so it's like like saving Mr. Banks, <laughs> the yeah. Howard Ashman story. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> All right, fair enough. I again, one of the best songwriters of the 20th century so yeah if any, he deserves like a kind of hagi- hagiographic treatment but yeah like also you gotta sanitize and you can't like go into every detail of a person's life or want to do it in ways in which like oh you know like um you know make the cross symbol like oh no no like you know, <laughs> can't be too gay you have to you know do family values or something yeah so i mm-hmm. i understand that all right but it, it it does sound interesting. Like it does sound more interesting than I thought it did because I saw that ad and it's just like, oh, here's the greatest man who ever lived. Like you know, I, I somewhat issue those documentaries, but maybe I will check it out. Okay. Yeah, it's uh, yeah. It's, it's pretty good. I'd say check okay. it out anyway. Yeah. Just you know, so you get at least some aspect of the story. Maybe not the whole story, but it's like you know, take what you can get. Get your gruel. Disney says feed on your gruel, <laughs> you maggots, <laughs> you <Okay>. swine. <laughs> well, John, while you were doing that, oh. I, my wife, and my mother-in-law were uh, <laughs> joining 60 million other households in watching Netflix's latest hit, uh, latest hit according to them, because we can't really verify their numbers. I don't know, maybe Nielsen has something similar or can verify, but uh, we watched The Queen's Gambit. <gasps> Ooh, fun. Yeah. This I is think. A, I haven't watched it yet. <laughs> Everyone's yeah. been talking about it, but, you know, it, yeah. sounds, it sounds fun. It's under the discourse, and, and John, be be ready. Buckle up for the discourse here. Um, you're oh, gonna be man. Into it. I've got my oven mitts on for Greg's hot takes. <laughs> Straight out of the oven. Let's go. Yeah. Yeah. So it's 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 wonderfully done. This is based on an old, uh, critically acclaimed novel from the 80s. They've been trying to make uh, some version of it for a long time. I was surprised to learn that at one point it was going to star Ellen Page and be directed by Heath Ledger, um, who was in talks to direct it before he, he passed away from a drug overdose in, in 2008. So... That that's tragic, but now it's in the hand, the very capable hands of Scott Frank, um, longtime like Hollywood veteran, wrote like Minority Report and The Lookout, a lot of like solid movies, and so this this has all the ingredients of great drama in terms of um, we have a, a fictional young woman who I think was inspired by Bobby Fischer, but she's a chess prodigy, um, but you have that other element of like a woman entering the world of chess, which is obviously like very a very young male enterprise, and so. Um, you have all those cultural expectations there. Where the where the show really excels is all the production value. Like they did all the sets, costumes, like to the nines, wonderful. Mm-hmm. And of course, I want to give all the credit in the world to also like not just Scott Frank's direction. I think he wrote and directed all seven episodes of this limited series. And gosh, knowing its success, that Netflix is going to want to make it, uh, <laughs> make more of it. We'll see. Um, I want to give all the credit to the world to Anya Taylor-Joy, the star. Um, the first few episodes we see um, 
this this chess prodigy as a young woman. But when she enters the picture, she's literally in like every frame of the show, mm-hmm. and she like nails it. She's like literally like the the gravitational pull of this whole show, and it and it just does an amazing job along with all these production designers to like really convey like new things with costume and and the fact that you know like when she enters high school she's got these she comes from an orphanage and has these like old brown shoes like and you know all the girls laugh at her because they've got their their stylish like sneakers or something i i don't I'm, I'm not getting the details right but again like wonderfully done there um but i will say um this reminds me a lot of knives out in terms of like product design, well-delineated characters. And so there are a lot of pleasures in the show, but they're simple ones. Oh. And I wish it kind of stuck to the promise of the first few episodes when it's clear that she's she's got she's might have inherited some mental illness from her mother mm-hmm. and might be entering some substance abuse issues cuz that's the thing you're always like um, as she rises to the chess ranks, you're always on a knife ed- knife's edge of like when she when is she going to implode? Like when is mm-hmm. Like when is she gonna fall off the wagon? Either like with her substance abuse issues, or actually facing like a, a her demons in terms of like mental illness, or or abusing uh, tranquilizers, or that's that's her main drug of choice because that's what they gave her at the orphanage she's she's coming up in. Um, so, and unfortunately, I think around the the fourth episode when she returns home and she meets some like characters that came up earlier in the theater, like um other young up-and-comers in the chess world like i feel like it loses that edge or it, it kind of gives her like a runway and then we get more into like the 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 simple pleasures of like oh there's a big bad russian how how will she do in their next match against him <laughs> like and so i i feel like it was missing like it could have gone harder like into those or really like kept the drama pitched up at nine but instead they like ratcheted it down a little bit and it becomes more of her romantic life or, yeah. or like yeah or like she does have like a rock bottom, but um, I see on social media like sorry, I I don't want to give away the whole the whole sh- the whole show, but um, she does have a rock bottom, and some people are are kind of goofing on social media like this is how men see a woman's rock bottom, and of course she's gorgeous in her underwear, <laughs> like yep. you know, <laughs> just surrounded by like a somewhat messy house, like so. Yep. <laughs> so yeah, so if. It kind of like tampers things down and make things like just a just a little bit like simpler, like or makes it more simple pleasures. Now, granted, there's nothing wrong with that. It's still like a very compelling and fulfilling TV show, but um, yeah, like I, it could have been like really extraordinary and just like and enters instead the realm of like very good in those in those final three or four episodes. So, well, it kind of the part of the reason why I kept away from it was like you said, the production design I know is like over the top and amazing. But mm-hmm. so is Ratchet, you know that yeah. <laughs> that prequel to uh like the like the the production design of that movie or that you know show is amazing, but again it's just kind of like it feels like a sheen over its emptiness and you know like well I will say so this show isn't empty again yeah on a on a Taylor Joy is uh, incredible as long as the rest of the cast um. It's the guy who plays Dudley Dursley in the in the Harry Potter movies, <laughs> and the and the limbless uh, orator in um, yeah. Ballad of Buster Scruggs. That, Scruggs he that was guy. also in that he's old very... guard movie. He's like the main oh, really? bad guy. Okay. Yeah. <laughs> All right. He's he's he plays a key role. He's very good. Like so th- so they aren't just empty costumes, John. I mean mm. they okay. they do do a very good job. Um, I I will say it did remind me a lot. This is a movie we haven't seen in years. It's it's one of our father's favorites. It did remind me because it's a, a very similar story. Um, this one based more in reality. It's um, Searching for Bobby Fischer, ah, which yes. is also about a young 
chess prodigy. And what I like about both of those stories is like um, the chess is kind of immaterial to mm-hmm. <laughs> not immaterial, but kind of like a, a sidebar to what what it's really about. In in searching for Bobby Fischer, it's about the relationship between a father and a son, and uh, like how to how to process this gift. Obviously. Uh, um, the the woman in uh, Queen's Gambit doesn't have parents, so it's not really about that. Instead, it's about which is such demons, a shame because so. you'd think that chess by itself would be able to carry a movie. It's so cinematically <laughs> exciting. I will say, Searching for Bobby Fischer does. Uh, do you remember the sound of like when they would slam the pieces yes. down and like? Mm-hmm. It, thankfully, the Queen's Gambit does it a little differently. It's a lot more elegant. Um, and like uh, it's so like the camera's moving around to, like like kind of circles the characters and focuses on their faces instead of like the piece like slamming slamming down. So at least it's, it's a different but but no less compelling. So so yeah, Queen's yeah. Gambit's still still darn good. Yeah, I mean we still haven't caught up on the Crown. We need to catch up on the Crown. Yeah. There's so much. It's so much, guys. <laughs> I was really hoping that you know COVID would really slowed the production to a crawl, but it's like they keep <laughs> coming out with all these new shows. <laughs> I was wondering like not just in terms of its quality, but the reason that. The Queen's Gambit. This again, this period drama about chess <laughs> is now a, a mega hit. Is because uh, with the fall schedule, with COVID nineteen still going on, there's no real TV fall schedule. Like I think, I think the only big show coming out is Big Sky on ABC, yeah. and that's about it. Like and the Mandalorian. I guess, I guess Mandalorian was kind of pitched for like perfect kind of fall sweeps. I think a little bit. Yeah, that's, that seems to be on everyone's lips, or at least uh, like kind of in the old way that a, a network TV show would be. Where it's like, you know, it's weekly, so it stays in the conversation more, you know, week to week. Where it's like, did you catch up on the latest episode? As opposed to Netflix strategy of like, dump it all out and let word of mouth, you know, pick it up. Come on. Yeah. <laughs> um, I I think it's more has to do with the surprise of it. Like the kind of novelty. It's like, let me tell you what I watched. It was a drama about chess. <laughs> like, <Yeah. laughs> no one expected it, it. Yeah, no one expected it to be like that kind of compelling. So as a result... Yeah, like people, people are kind of like shouting to about the to the rafters. Like, have you seen this? <laughs> yeah. And maybe they just well, want to look smart when they t- say that they they enjoyed it. So who knows? Yeah, well, it's a, it, I'd say well done. I don't I don't know how to define entertainment as smart quote mm. in quotes, but <laughs> yeah, it, I'm sure it came as a, a shock to people to be you know drawn in by a period drama about chess. You and I having seen Searching for Bobby Fischer though aren't surprised. We know no. we know what uh what, uh, what uh, excuse me, we are very smart and very correct on all things. So. Yeah, we know what drama can be plumbed <laughs> from the from the gentleman's game. Indeed. <laughs> yeah, of chess. <laughs> but John, we've gone on a little long. I mean, do you want to tell do you want to wrap it up tell people how to get to, how to get in contact with us via email and social media? Oh, well, you can always reach out to us with your Wrong. Questions. Trivia challenge. Oh, fuck. <laughs> Damn it! You always do this to me. <laughs> yes, I do. All right, this is part of this is part of the psychological warfare we're engaged in by a trivia. Um, a game as compelling as chess, if you ask me. You monster! You monster! Well, thankfully, I'm up on my tranks. I've got my. <laughs> I've, I've taken yes. a few shots, so I am ready. I am loaded. Let's do this. <laughs> Perfect. All right. So, John, we talked about the Three Colors trilogy, and it got me thinking about other trilogies and some that aren't quite as well planned or. Uh, <laughs> Don't have the same consistent cast. Um, I had this idea, and then I thought it'd be even funnier if there was some recasting at the at the very end of Red, um, mm. when the whole cast comes together, where they, oh no, Julia Binoche isn't available. Um, here's <laughs> Julia Roberts instead. <laughs> now she's playing. Now she's playing Julie, who uh, survived the the fairy wreck. But, well, um, she would be in the American remake for sure. Oh, like, absolutely. Yeah, yes. they would they would cast her instead. So yeah. So, John, what I have here is our eight trilogies mm-hmm. and eight characters. 
Okay. And you have to tell me what two actors actually portrayed them. Um, I'll give a little backstory in terms of like what what happened and, and why casting changes. But um, John, you have to explain who the two actors are over the course of these casting changes in trilogies. Are you ready? Uh, no. <laughs> I'm very bad with actors. <laughs> I'm very bad with names. Uh, this is not going to be good. Let's do this. I, I think I, I think he'll do pretty well. It, it starts off pretty easy. Um, okay. The other ones, it, there's no way you'll get them, but again, the the trivia and the, and the backstory behind each of these casting changes is too good to pass up. So. All right. All right. Let's, let's hear it. Number one, the Star Wars prequel trilogy, Anakin Skywalker. What two actors played Anakin Skywalker in the Star Wars prequel trilogy? Well, that would obviously be uh, Jake Floyd in The Phantom Menace, and then Hayden Christensen in the subsequent Attack of the Clones and um, uh, Revenge of the Sith. I don't know why I blanked on Revenge of the Sith, <laughs> but there you go. I'll give you a mild correct, because his name is Jake Lloyd, not Jake Floyd. Uh, damn it! Said, but <laughs> I, I, I got the sentiment. I know what you meant. So uh, Yeah, classic, you know, Jake Lloyd. You know, we all remember him from Jingle All the Way in The Phantom Menace. <laughs> yes, <laughs> that's why you called him Floyd, but anyway. <laughs> Moving on, correct. Number Okay, number two. The Dark Knight trilogy, Rachel Dawes. Oh, well, everyone remembers that in Batman Begins, she was played by Katie Holmes. And then in the subsequent sequel, The Dark Knight, she was played by uh, Maggie Gyllenhaal. Correct. John, who was she played by in uh, The Dark Knight Rises? Oh, just, uh, <laughs> let's not get into it. Spoiler alert. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Let's, we'll not, we won't spoil a movie that's now 12 years old and everybody's already seen, so... She goes to live with Harvey Dent, and, you know, it's it's written off in a line. It's like, oh, can you believe they live upstate now? <laughs> How boring. <Yeah. laughs> but anyway, uh, they, they recast Katie Holmes because it wasn't a great performance in Batman Begins, and also she had too much notoriety from being uh, Mrs. Yes. Tom Cruise. Mrs. Tom Cruise. Um, well, and, uh, like, we've made this point before. It's not that she didn't do a bad performance. It's, it's a thin character, so it's not yes, a lot to as, work And with. then, as we saw with Maggie Gyllenhaal, this is a very badly written character, and, yeah, no actress could... <laughs> could do anything with it but uh, can you anyway. believe the trio of <laughs> jonathan nolan christopher <laughs> nolan and david s goyer couldn't write a good female character how disappointing yeah. <laughs> yeah unbelievable all right number three the iron man trilogy colonel james rhodes in the uh first movie he was played by one terrence howard um and in subsequent appearances in the rest of the uh, marvel cinematic universe he is played by um oh god i'm blanking out his name um, oh, shoot! I was afraid you would. Crap! What is his name? Black Monday, Ocean's Eleven. Come on, John. Hotel Rwanda. Come on, John. Oh. I know you have it. It's on the tip of your tongue. <laughs> Damn it! <laughs> Fuck! I really can't. Ocean's Eleven. Ocean's yeah. Eleven. I. You know. You know who I'm talking about. But I. Can't. I know who you're talking about. Um, <sighs> the initials DC. I mean. Sorry, this is painful. It's Don Cheadle. Don Cheadle! Damn it! (laughs) I know. It's just Thanksgiving. Our brains are now atrophy from from turkey and booze. So... (laughs) But John, you're three for three. I'm giving I'm giving you credit because oh, I yeah you. I know you, kn- you know who we're talking about yeah. yeah. All right, number four, the Back to the Future trilogy, George McFly. Oh well, this one I I only know who played him in the original. In the first movie, it was obviously Crispin Glover, and then he asked for too much money to appear, so they got a lookalike actor and dumped him into a lot of old age <laughs> makeup, flipped him upside down, and said, "Hey, it's George McFly." Um, <laughs> yeah. But unfortunately, I don't know who that actor is, so no, I, I'm no. gonna go. I'm gonna go ahead and say it's um, 
uh, Eric Stoltz. There you go. <laughs> That's a great, great, great poll there, John. Unfortunately, it's incorrect. Um, don't worry, because nobody knows who this is. He, he, you were right. In Back to the Future, played by Crispin Glover. He did ask for too much money, and in, it's too much of a weirdo. So instead, they replaced him with one Jeff Wiseman. Mm. Um, who has not gone on, unfortunately, to have the legendary career that Crispin Glover has had. Um, well, I mean, I wouldn't necessarily call Crispin Glover's career legendary either. Yeah. Um, excuse me? Have you not seen Friday the 13th Part 4? <laughs> uh, hello, Willard? Can we all remember yeah. the remake of Willard? <laughs> yeah. All right, number f- number five, the Aladdin trilogy. Mm. Now, yes. this one and also... Prob- yes, this one I actually do know. Um mm-hmm. The, uh, well, I haven't even given the character yet. It's the genie, John. Well, what yes, two actors I, uh, play yeah, the genie? Yeah, because I, know, I already know where it's going, Greg. Okay. Okay. All right. The genie well, famously was played by Dan Castanella in Return of Jafar and just, <laughs> you know, blew the blew the door off, made that movie a hit. And exactly. It's, it's amazing because then people revisited the original and saw this no-name guy named Robin Williams who played him, <laughs> and they're like, oh, okay, I guess I guess there was something to this original movie. So it's like, unfortunately, you know, Return of the Jafar is the one that everyone remembers, and they're like, oh my god, the greatest animation achievement of all time. <laughs> Dan Castanella knocks it out of the park again. But yes, Robin Williams played uh, him in the original, and obviously uh, Homer Simpson took over for the second one <laughs> after Disney... I know the story behind it, too. Disney broke his contract. He initially didn't want to be like the main kind of selling point, the name above the poster, and they couldn't use the genie to market too much of the movie. I think only a quarter, he st- his contract stipulated only a quarter of the time could be u- like the genie could be used. Mm-hmm. Unfortunately, this is Disney, and their, their merchandising machine is their, <laughs> is their main draw, so obviously they, they kind of broke that side of the contract. Yes, absolutely right. But, John, you didn't say who played... <laughs> the genie in the third Aladdin film. Um, Robin Williams came back, didn't he? Yes, at, in Aladdin, King of Thieves. So yeah, you're yes. right. Robin Williams did come back. He, uh, they, they had Disney had a little mea culpa. They made, uh, they made amends, and Robin Williams did come back for the third one. Um, but the second one, you were right. Dan Castellaneta came in, the voice of Homer Simpson. He might be more famous for that one. I'm not sure yet, but... Uh... <laughs> All right, what, what number are we on? Six. Here we go. Number six. All right, here we are. All right, the Matrix trilogy, and the character is the Oracle. <sighs> I know they, re- they. Unfortunately, the actress died between the filming of the second and third one. <laughs> I I don't know either actress's name. Yes, I, I didn't think you would. <laughs> yeah, but uh, it's Gloria Foster who mm-hmm. played the Oracle in. Uh, Matrix and The Matrix Reloaded. Unfortunately, she passed away before she could film all her scenes in The Matrix Revolutions, those very memorable scenes that everybody loved. Um, <laughs> and she was uh, replaced by Mary Alice. Mm. Yeah. Right. Okay, number seven. The blank of the Planet of the Apes trilogy, Koba. Ooh. Damn. Uh, it's funny. I've looked him up. So I don't know who... Fi- who- who played him in the Rise of the Planet of the Apes, but I do know the actor who played him in the subsequent film, Dawn of the Planet of the Apes, because we recently rewatched The Sorcerer's Apprentice <laughs> on Disney Plus, and he plays the Chris Angel parody, who's like the apprentice to um, uh, 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 Alfred Molina's character. So um, 
but uh, I can't remember his name. I will tell you, though, he also did the mocap and played King Kong in Kong Skull Island. So it's that guy. <laughs> <Yes>. <laughs> unfortunately, unfortunately, I won't give you credit for this one. What? Come on. Because his, his name isn't on the tip of your tongue like Donald Shingle was. You're looking for Toby Kebbell. Toby Kebbell. Kebbel. That's the one I was looking yeah. for. Yeah. Yeah. And in the first movie, he was played by Christopher Gordon, um, who I believe was a stuntman or... Mm. I don't know some yeah, they, uh, but he was just filler. It was just somebody that could, that could fit inside the the ping pong ball suit um, mm-hmm. to play okay. Koba. Obviously, then he became uh, the primary villain in Dawn of the Planet of the Apes. Yeah, um, required not required just... a, a more deft actor to really capture you know exactly. the sinister side of Koba. So yes, mm-hmm. yeah. okay. Now, John, last one, and All I think right. this is the most challenging one because it's a little bit theoretical. Okay, mm-hmm. are you ready? Yeah, the Fantastic Beast trilogy. What two actors played Gellert Grindelwald? Well, I, I don't think this is theoretical anymore. Uh, they did <laughs> announce that, unfortunately, Johnny Depp, after losing his libel case, uh, mm-hmm. you know, now he's branded a wife beater forever. Um, <laughs> he can no longer play the villain of Grindelwald. So I think... So, but speaking of which, how bad do you have to be to lose a libel case in the UK? <laughs> <laughs> they hate free speech there. I mean, come on. You effed up. Yes, you effed up. You effed up big time. But um, they, I believe the news was, the headlines I read said that they had recast the part with Mads Mikkelsen. And the that world is, is a much better place for it. John, ring the damn sales bell. You are correct. <laughs> you blew the doors off that trivia challenge mm. again. <laughs> yeah, I, I mean, I did, I did my utmost. And that's yeah. all Jesus can ask me. <laughs> yes, yes, you did. <laughs> all right. Again, another triumph for you. Another failure for me uh, in trivia challenge. But. That was a good trivia challenge. I liked it. That was okay. good. All right, all right, all right. But John, go ahead. Tell the people how they can get in touch with us. The all social right. Media well, now, thing. now you should know that if you want to give us your questions, your recommendations, or maybe you have suggestions for the show, want to reach out to us directly, email us at aspiringsnobs at gmail dot com. Do it. Yes. You can also reach out to us twitter dot com slash aspiring snobs, facebook dot com slash aspiring snobs. We're there. DMs. We have an Instagram that's DMs. now dead. Yeah, <laughs> it's not dead. It's just <laughs> currently not moving. That's all. Okay. I don't like that, this dichotomy the internet's given us, where everything has to be either alive or dead. Oh, this meme's right. dead. Oh, this meme's alive. Like, come on. There's yeah, lots of nuance, some, guys. Yeah. Some 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 social media accounts are just uh, incels or hikikomori. Just don't leave the house. <laughs> Think of it more like the 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 husband in Parasite who has to live under the, the basement yes. from yeah, debtors. That's, you know, yeah, that's where that's where our Instagram that's where our is. social media is currently. So. <laughs> yeah. Mm-hmm. All right, John. Uh, that's that's not all. I'm I'm assigning you to. You also have to regale the folks with our the movie we'll be watching next week. Um, boys Choice. All right. Uh, well, Greg. I think we're a little overdue for another R&R. What do you think? There's just so many movies coming out now. No, we just had Thanksgiving uh, Thanksgiving holiday. Like yeah, but that's saying. when all the big movies now come out. You know, oh, okay, It's like enough, everyone's yeah. stuck at home, so they're like, oh, let's, let's catch them during Thanksgiving. Let's catch them during Christmas. And get that, that juicy Oscar buzz, which is totally a thing this year. It's totally yeah. happening. <laughs> exactly. I, 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 for one, look forward to Minari, however it comes to us. So. <laughs> I mean, next next time you hear us, we'll be talking about you know Hillbilly Elegy. A lot of buzz around that one. A lot yep, of positive obviously. buzz. I, I expect to love it based on its tomato on uh based on its Rotten Tomato score. Um, and, and the book, which I hear is also great. 
Um, it'll also give me an excuse to finally watch Happiest Season, which just came out. So I need to. Okay. Yeah. I need to catch up on that one. So. On. That Did one's you know on Hulu, Kristen right? Stewart's gay? <laughs> More shockingly, do you know she could do comedy, a romantic what? comedy? <laughs> yeah. The versatility. Yeah. She, Twilight no more, I'll tell you that much. Yeah. So we're all going to be trying new things. There you go. By not actually seeing an R&R in theaters, but anyway. <laughs> Have we done that before? I, the closest we got was... Yeah, the, technically the last one we did was a more kind of in-house catch-up. I did talk about... Actually, no, yeah. We we talked about like the last movie we saw in February. <laughs> but yeah. <laughs> this will be our and, first exclusive streaming R&R, I guess. Yeah. Yeah. Well, I guess there was that Irishman one, but... Mm-hmm. And then also we saw Under the Silver Lake, uh, <laughs> on demand where it belongs. Um, <laughs> but we we had at, at the bottom. Of, yes, at the bottom of uh, <laughs> Under the Silver Lake, like like so many uh, ET the game cartridges buried. <laughs> but we paired that with Pokemon Detective Pikachu. You know, yes. another another yeah. Hitchcock inspired film. So yeah. <laughs> Why isn't that getting a sequel? Whatever happened to that? I don't know. I think. Yeah, they definitely it definitely wasn't a, a t, an S tier 100% IV um, <laughs> Pokemon movie. All right, I will say that. But they, it, they should it have called like us. It seems like it was big we, enough that it's like greenlit a sequel right away. Like, come on, we've got I two guess, trolls yeah. movies for crying out loud. Like, yeah, we're gonna have many Sonic movies. Like, so yeah, I don't know what's <laughs> just <got laughs> sick to my stomach thinking about it. <laughs> well, we'll leave we'll leave people with that thought of, of John rushing to the toilet. <laughs> I mean, to refund his lunch. Either I'm sick because I'm thinking about uh, Sonic movies, or I'm sick because I had too much Olive Garden. I love Olive Garden. <laughs> Do you love Olive Garden as much as Sonic the Hedgehog loves Olive Garden? John, you're adding a whole new dimension to the Sonic movie that I didn't know was there. So, <laughs> wait a minute, you're telling me there was product placement in that movie? <laughs> yeah. Well, we'll explore those dimensions next week when we expand our minds to Mank and uh, the Hellbillyology. There you go. Yeah. All right. Well, thank you for everybody for listening. Yeah. And until then, keep aspiring. Gotta go fast. Gotta go fast. Too 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 fast